There are so many religions in the world. How are they similar and how are they different? We need to know. The culturally correct view is to blend them all together as equally relevant and legitimate. But is that true? Prior to becoming a follower of Jesus, your host, Mike Shreve, was an avid seeker of truth, exploring many paths to spirituality. One of his passions now is to help bridge the gap so that others can discover the true light, which gives light to everyone entering the world. Now, here's Mike Shreve revealing the true light. The Lord's Prayer is found twice in the Bible, both times in the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13, and in Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. Interestingly, the first mention in the Gospel of Matthew was a part of Jesus' famous presentation called the Sermon on the Mount. But in Luke chapter 11, he gave this prayer in response to a request from his disciples to teach them how to pray. Now, maybe they forgot the original instructions, or maybe like the rest of us, they just needed a rehearsal of this truth to get it more ingrained in their spirit. But since that time, this prayer has been probably the most famous prayer in the world quoted, used by multitudes of people, not only Christians, but non-Christians are well familiar with it. I use the Lord's Prayer myself, not in a religious and repetitive way, but in a structural kind of way. When I approach God in prayer, often I go through the various stages of the prayer, the various steps of the prayer, and fill it in with a lot of spontaneous and creative thought, because I don't believe prayer is supposed to be rigidly ritualistic, but prayer is supposed to be creative, an expression of the heart, where you're communicating with God out of the depth of your being, and that comes with a flow of words that is spontaneous. But recently, I have discovered that line by line, phrase by phrase, word by word, the Lord's Prayer is amazing in its ability to establish worldview. What do I mean by that? It establishes correct doctrine. It establishes the truth in areas like the nature of God and the nature of human beings, the nature of the universe and the nature of our relationship with him. The nature of salvation is indicated in the Lord's Prayer. It is so powerful to take this prayer word by word, phrase by phrase, line by line, and contrast it to other religions and the doctrinal base of those religions to see what worldview was embraced by the Lord Jesus and certainly the worldview we should embrace as followers of Jesus. Let me quote it to you in its entirety. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now that's the New King James Version of the Lord's Prayer. Let's take it 
word by word, phrase by phrase, and line by line. We may not be able to get to all of it on this podcast, but we will complete this teaching. The first word is the word our. What does that establish? Well, in Eastern religions, when I studied yoga and meditation, it was all about withdrawing internally in order to become one with the oversoul in order to reach God consciousness. It was an escape from the world and from flesh consciousness and a retreat into what some call the silence where mystical experiences awaited me. But the emphasis in true Christianity is not internal, but external. It's more practical and more powerful as a result. It's all about others. That's why in the Lord's Prayer, you never find the words I, me, or my, but you do find the words our, us, and we, because, well, that's just the selfless nature of what Christianity is supposed to be. Now, the second word is the word father, our father. When you contrast that to several other religions, you see a definite uniqueness about Christianity. For instance, in Buddhism, there is no concept of a creator God. The universe came into existence just by cause and effect. So there's no reference to the quote-unquote father in that worldview. And in Hinduism, ultimate reality is Brahman. And Brahman is an impersonal force, a life force, that flows through the entire universe. Not a God you communicate with in a personal way, but an essence, a force that you tap into in order to awaken it within yourself. Certainly not something you would address as father. In Islam, you have 99 names for God, but not one of them is father, because one of the basic precepts in Islam is that God is not begotten, neither does he beget. There is no concept of sons and daughters of God, so likewise there is no concept of the fatherhood of God. In Taoism, also, uh, ultimate reality is referred to as an it, not a he, and we'll get to that more later. So in Christianity, you find this beautiful characteristic of God unveiled. He is the Father. Your Father knows that you have need of these things, Jesus said, and it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. That is so enriching to know that you can approach God that way. The, the next two words are in heaven, our Father in heaven. Now, what does that establish? What aspect of your worldview does that indicate? Well, one of the main things it shows is the contrast between the Hindu or New Age idea of pantheism as opposed to theism. Now, let me give you a little bit more definition of those terms. The word pantheism comes from two root words, pantheos, that means all is God. And theism is the belief that God exists apart from the physical universe. In pantheism, the essence of God, the life of God, permeates the entire universe, this impersonal force 
But in theism, God exists apart from the universe. He is in heaven. It is a much, much different approach. The next line is, Hollywood be your name. The word Hollywood simply means holy or sacred. Now, contrasted to all the names of various deities revered in Hinduism, and the, the traditional number is 330 million gods and goddesses. In this prayer, the true name, the correct name of God is being singled out. Now, in Sikhism, any name is sufficient because Guru Nanak taught that the God of the Muslims and the God of the Hindus is one and the same God. It doesn't really matter what name you use in reference to deity. And then in Taoism, and I can quote from the book I've written, In Search of the True Light, Under the Nature of God, I am quoting from the Tao Te Ching 25, and it is a reference to the nature of ultimate reality. These are words from that text. There was something undifferentiated and yet complete, which existed before heaven and earth, soundless and formless. It depends on nothing and does not change. It operates everywhere and is free from danger. It may be considered the mother of the universe. I do not know its name, I call it Tao, and the word Tao means way or the way, the way that we should live in life, the way that we should interpret the universe and existence. That's what Tao means. Well, in that quote from the Tao Te Ching, ultimate reality is referred to as an it. In fact, the writer said, I do not know its name, I call it Tao. But we do know the name of the Lord biblically. Now, in this particular podcast, I don't have time to go into an in-depth teaching on the name of the Lord, but all through the Old Testament, the word that is normally translated Lord over 2,000 times is called the Tetragrammaton. yud heh vav are the four Hebrew letters that are correctly, I believe, pronounced Yahweh. And Yahweh is the personal name of God. And we know that the Yahweh of the Old Testament incarnated as a human being. He came in the form of his son, and his name, given by the angel Gabriel, was Yeshua in Hebrew, or Jesus in English. And the Yahweh of the Old Testament is the Yeshua of the New Testament. Hallowed be your name. And the name of the Lord is really a combination of all the names, all the titles given to him throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. What a powerful thing to do when you're praying to take all of the names given to him and celebrate them as you worship him. It is not enough and it is not suitable to just use any name that any religion assigns to God because the name of a deity is inextricably connected to the doctrinal base that surrounds that name. And it is often connected to a worldview that is full of error. For instance, the name Krishna. There are millions of devotees around the world that reverence Krishna. However, in their doctrinal base, it teaches that 
Krishna, when he was on the earth, had 16,108 women who were his queens. And he divided himself into 16,108 forms so that he could dwell in 16,108 palaces with each one of them personally. And he had 10 children by each one of those wives. Well, if you use the name Krishna as you approach God in worship, if God were to respond to that, he would be verifying that particular belief, which of course is an erroneous belief. So the name is essentially important. And the Bible said, God has highly exalted the Lord Jesus and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that he is Lord. Also, the scripture says, whosoever shall call on the name, not a name, but the name of the Lord shall be saved, shall be delivered. Because that name, that precious name of Jesus, is connected to the doctrinal base that surrounds that name, like the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension of the Lord Jesus, the promise to dwell in the hearts of his people, all of those things are connected to the uttering of that name by a faith-filled follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. So you can see that the name is essentially important. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. The next line is, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, this is contrasted to the idea that the kingdom is already within every human being according to New Age spirituality. Now, when I was a yoga teacher, I often referred to something Jesus said in Luke chapter 17. Certain Jewish authorities came to him and said, uh, when is the kingdom of God going to appear? And Jesus responded, the kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, see here or see there. For indeed, the kingdom of God is within you. And I use that statement out of context to prove that every human being has a divine essence or has the kingdom within them. But when you put that statement back into its context, you have to come to the conclusion that Jesus was not declaring the kingdom was within every human being. Those were his detractors. Those were the ones who were fighting against them. He wasn't saying that the kingdom, which is filled with the very character of God, was dwelling within his enemies. He was giving a hypothetical statement. He was saying, if you ever have an experience of the kingdom, it will be internal. It's like telling a depressed person, joy is not in external things, joy is within you. That doesn't mean that that person is experiencing joy, it means that if they have an experience of true joy, it will be internal. In fact, Jesus began that discourse by saying the kingdom of God does not come with observation. See, the Jewish authorities thought that the kingdom would advance by Jesus raising up an army, 
pushing the Romans out one city at a time and establishing Zionism. But Jesus said the kingdom of God does not come with observation. They're not going to say, look, that city's back under the control of the Jews, and this city is back under the control of the Jews. In essence, he was saying there's a whole new way of establishing the kingdom now. It's spiritual. It's internal. But he also said in another passage, except a man be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom. And he told his disciples, there are some standing here who will not taste of death until the kingdom of God comes with power. Because that happened on the day of Pentecost. The kingdom of God did not invade this world in power until a rushing mighty wind came into the upper room and tongues of fire appeared over each of them and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, at that moment, the kingdom came within them. And from that day forward, whenever a person is born again, the kingdom comes within them exactly what Jesus was talking about. So this very statement, your kingdom come, your will be done, is a request, it's a plea that the kingdom will come and live within the hearts of men. And then ultimately, in the messianic age beyond, it's a plea that God will saturate the whole world with his kingdom presence so that it will be heaven on earth, a paradise once again, just like God established in the very beginning. Well, we've gotten partially through the Lord's Prayer, and in the next podcast, in the next episode, we're going to continue with establishing worldview through the Lord's Prayer. Thank you for joining Mike Shreve today on Revealing the True Light, and thank you for opening your mind and your heart to the truth. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, cpnshows.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss new episodes. You can explore the beliefs of many world religions more deeply by ordering Mike Tree's book titled In Search of the True Light. We also invite you to visit our website, thetruelight.net, and sign up to be part of our global internet family.